Hello to all you survivors out there in the wasteland. We're transmitting from our hermetically sealed bunker beneath the nation's capital, and thank you for joining us on whatever scavenged receiver you've got going today. I'm Evan May, author of King in Darkness and Bonhomme Satire. And I'm Brandon Crilly, Ottawa-based author of science fiction and fantasy. Our cozy little bunker is keeping us safe from the wrath of the giant radioactive lizard, the giant ape, and the giant moth that are leveling our city. Kaiju attack on the capital, eh? Someone should make an RPG about that. They really should. But at the moment, we'll be talking about the stories we love from the world of science fiction, fantasy, and horror, as well as the tales that come from the creation of stories and the creation of art in general. Today, we've invited two of our fellow survivors to share their own ideas, experiences, and interests with us. Here's who'll be joining us in the bunker today. Hi, I'm David Demchuk, award-winning author of The Bone Mother and my new novel, Red X, and I have recently become a collector of vintage plastic Halloween masks. Hi, I'm Phoebe Barton, a queer trans story and game writer in Toronto, and I was nearly killed by a mailbox when I was 13. We're both really looking forward to our conversation today and just as excited that we get to share it with you. Gather around, survivors, and welcome to Broadcasts from the Wasteland. Both of us, we'd be, you know, running around for the holidays and then, you know, seeing family. Like, I'd be out of town because I'm actually from Burlington. And oh. so my family is down there. And so, I, you know, I'd, I'd be gone for a couple of days. Um, and it was so like, you know, everything going on in the world aside, it was actually really nice just to stay here. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> this is it. I, I, on one hand, you know, I definitely am feeling um, the effects of isolation when it comes to particular milestones and events with friends and family. But I'm Mm -hmm. a generally solitary person. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I did make the mistake. We'll take it back to my workplace one more time where my boss's boss, you know, checked in with me early on, like a few months in. So, so how are you doing? And I I said, I am thriving. (laughs) Which actually (laughs) was probably the wrong answer. (laughs) Everyone else is tearing their hair out and crying in the corner. And there's me just going, I love it. If I never see any of you again, it's going to be too soon. So, you know, it's... uh... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you definitely don't want to say that. (laughs) (laughs) No, I stopped short of that. But... (laughs) But only just... No, but that's the thing is like there's, you know, at, at the very least, there are there are silver linings and, and, and kind of fringe benefits to this, especially if like, you know, you're a little introverted, like, like, oh, yeah, the isolation is, is serious, right? And, and we don't want to be isolated all the time. But there are certain benefits like, like teaching from home, like, you know, in the spring, like the teaching sucked, but being at home was kind of okay. How did it work out for you technologically as far as oh, teaching from home? Oh, it's horrifically bad. Oh. Um, like, <laughs> Great. <laughs> Great. It was, it was so bad. Um, like, like, because we're on, like, the platform itself is fine. Like, like, we use a, we can either use Google Classroom or this thing called Brightspace or VLE. Was, I, just, I didn't look at it because I, I already had a Google Classroom set up. Hmm. And so we were using Google Classroom and Google Meet. And, and it was like, you know, check in with your students and try to do a discussion. And 
so like I'm, I mean, you've probably seen other teachers talking about this online, but like I'm sitting there on my computer and I'm staring at just blank screens because we were told right at the beginning, you know, tell the students not to turn their webcams on, you know, just in case, you know, make sure you're, you know, uh, you're never um, just you and one student in the Google Meet, just in case, mm-hmm. um, all this liability stuff. And like, and then it was like, you know, do we record the meet? Do we not record the meet? They're going back and forth. So I'm just looking at this, like this wall of no faces. Yeah. And I would throw a question to them and I would get nothing. And I'm like, okay, let me throw this question at and nothing. And so finally I just gave up on that and, and said to them, you know, like, if you want to talk one-on-one, I'm here. If not, you know, here's my, my uh, Google classroom post for the day. Um, you know, here's your task for the day. Let me know if you have any questions. So I was just emailing. It was like teaching summer school. Yeah. Um, and so like, like the, it didn't feel like teaching. Like, like the platform itself, like the bare bones of it worked, but anytime I tried to do anything beyond that, it was a nightmare. And so I finally just gave up. <laughs> yeah. But what yeah. do you think? Yeah, it really puts a new, uh, it really puts a new perspective and consideration on all those uh, older science fiction stories that thought uh, remote teaching was going to be the way of the future. Yeah, it's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's easy to it's easy to talk a lot about how this is this sort of thing is going to transform everything if you don't think beyond the surface level. Yeah, exactly. Like, has the, like what has been kind of the biggest um, wake up call is the wrong word for it, but like the the kind of shifts the, like the kind of predictive things in science fiction that now you're looking at and it's like okay that was way off the mark. Like, has anyone, like, ju- anything jumped out at you in the past, whatever, 10 years we've been doing this for? I would say, well, like, still... for 5 or 10, not quite so much. The last time I can really think of that is, like, I wasn't, I wasn't involved in the scene then, but because I was a kid. But in it's an interesting thing, reading stories from, like, the mid to late 80s and early mm. 90s especially short fiction, because it's very much a time where pe- like writers could tell that the internet was going to be a thing, but nobody knew what it was going to look like or how it was going to manifest. And so there's a lot of room for uncertainty or those weird things or those weird things there that don't pan out that seem that just seem kind of almost antiquated or weird just because coming at it from different starting assumptions, but also not knowing how all of this is going to fractally unfold. And like, Mm. honestly, it makes sense because it's weird. I feel like in terms of the internet, like it's only fairly recently that it's settled down enough for people to understand it really. Yeah, I think that what's happened is that the technologies that are going to be or have been affected by the internet are the ones that are going to sort of continue along those lines. It's going to be, you know, you know, ex versions of like chat rooms and versions of, you know, video chat and versions, you know, versions of email and versions of, you know, group sort of gathering stuff. There hasn't been a lot um, 
to evolve that we've been presented with that uh, that goes beyond a lot of that stuff. And of course, mm-hmm. the other thing is, and I think this is a perennial problem with speculative fiction is, um, you know, of all kinds, is that you introduce the specific element and then there, you know, for, for some writers, there is no thought of, okay, how is this going to change everything? Maybe, mm-hmm. you know, the thought is, oh, this will change one or two things. You know, having a computer in my pocket that I can, you know, voice chat and face chat with people and you know, all of that, like that has changed a billion things, it feels like, not just one or two or three things. And mm-hmm. and on one hand, it would be almost impossible to sit there and extrapolate all of the possible things that would be affected and then make them relate into like some kind of coherent narrative with characters. But I but occasionally like I, I you look back at like 2001 and um, the Space Odyssey and you and you mm-hmm. see that. You know, their vision of <laughs> their vision of the future was everything's going to look really different and mod, but all of the behavior is going to be the same. All yeah. of the interaction is going to be the same. And when you're when you're interacting with a psychotic computer, the psychotic computer is going to interact like a human being with you and not something else. So right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so yeah. It's odd that um, that things don't sort of, you know, go into galaxy brain more to a certain Mm -hmm. extent. And the Mm -hmm. same is true with horror too. I mean, you know, horror, a lot of what works in horror is people attempting to be normal within an abnormal situation and people coming at it with, you know, a very sort of limited focus on what might actually, you know, if we just do this thing a little, maybe things will improve a lot, whereas that's generally not the case. Um, but mm. uh, but I think it's just like you know, what do you do if your if your world that you're creating accepts the possibility of ghosts? That's more than just oh well you know here we have a haunted house that parapsychologists are examining. It's really about what does this mean for humanity? You know right. what does it mean? You know is there an afterlife? Is this the afterlife you're trapped in your house? Is like, you know, (laughs) are you interacting with other ghosts from other periods of time? You know, is there anything that you can share or say to people who are alive now? Like all of those kinds of things, or is it really just, you know, I'm dead and I'm angry and I'm going to chase you around. (laughs) (laughs) That is all the afterlife. (laughs) And I understand that because that's all my workplace is. So, uh... (laughs) well, in that regard too, one thing that I think it might be an issue of, uh, or it's something that can be affected by the kinds of stories, like in terms of Mm -hmm. standalone stories versus linked stories, just Mm -hmm. because personally, Standalone stories are not things I really like to write because mm. you don't have to worry about consequences. You can do whatever you you can do whatever you want in there, and what happens after doesn't necessarily matter. It's just like the story ends, and what goes on beyond that is there's nothing beyond that because the story ends. But when you've got linked stories which some authors do do it does open up a lot of those possibilities for those consequences to be considered and for there to be more of a deeper dive 
rather than the surface level thing of like the ghost is angry and wants to chase you around because right, that's yeah. what ghosts do. Exactly. I mean, even if they're not like linked linked, I do like stories that are sort of in a shared universe. I mean, you know, you've gone to all this trouble to do all this world building and you've gone to all this trouble to sort of create a sense of place and a sense of how characters interact with each other and stuff. I mean, and having to reinvent that wheel over and over and over for particular stories, I just, mm -hmm. I find that, I mean, it's not something that I have to deal with a lot, but I would find it exhausting. I would want a world that I could continually return to and, you know, new characters, new situations, exploring new aspects of it, but that, mm -hmm. you know, felt some kind of unity or cohesion. I think that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, that is absolutely. what. Yeah, that is the sort of thing I do do myself, just because it opens up so many more possibilities, but also more because it limits me. In the case of there are things which I have decided are not happening, and so it takes that whole thing of like you can do literally anything and compresses it, more fortifies the boundaries. So I have a better sense of what I can do. But the whole doing stories apart from that, that was something that I was really reluctant to do until I went through Clarion West because there was mm -hmm. a whole, there were, I had a lot of, I had a lot of internalized weirdness and sometimes it's a lot easier to just keep on going in a familiar rut rather than break out. And sometimes I feel like it's the, that rut can have an influence on the whole issue of trying to figure out the other complications and implications because well, it really depends on the situation you're in because especially for especially for writers in the 30s going way back but they didn't have any most of them had no intention of doing that their intention was to write this as quickly as possible so that they mm -hmm. could write something else after that yeah, yeah, yeah. because they could actually make a living by that then yeah mm -hmm. yeah it was a product and it was like yeah. and the whole concept was thrilling stories and it's like yeah. okay all i have to do is make it thrilling whatever that means <laughs> yeah like yeah like the, the, the very first issue of what ended up ended up becoming analog has uh, a guy punching a giant alien beetle of course <laughs> Of course. You know, I was thinking giant ants, but giant beetle does the job. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cool, man. Mm. But then, you know, but then it's like, okay, so you have a world that has giant ants, you know, mm -hmm. improbable. There are some physics and biology issues here, but let's go with it. It's like, okay, what are the implications of giant insects? You know, can you communicate with yep. them? Can you harvest them? Can they harvest mm -hmm. you? Can they... <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> like, like, you know, is there, is there a farm? Is there a community? Is there, <laughs> yeah, 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 you know, yeah. like those kinds of those, I mean, I like the social aspect of speculative fiction anyway, any, 
anything that that gets away i mean i guess that qualifies as say soft science fiction and soft fantasy yeah. where you're really where you're really concerned mostly with social structures and relationships and and all of that stuff that stuff really appeals to me though because i don't understand society anyway i might as well look at other societies <laughs> and go what the hell are you doing that we could be doing <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> do you find it, like or sorry people go ahead so I was going to say, and it's just so important, too, because there's so much of that legacy of science fiction only being focused on stuff like the physics and the technology and that yeah. also and that kind of stuff. Thanks to well, like Gernsback was really into mm. just using using the magazines as mechanisms to talk about like new technology for the sake of it and something and Campbell had his own deep 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 well of problems <laughs> yes well you run the risk i mean first of all you run the risk of of being a propagandist for whatever new technology you envision which you think is mm-hmm. going to realize some sort of you utopia but then you also run the risk of being a propagandist for the kind of utopia that you think can be solved by this technology and that is often not a good thing <laughs> no exactly yeah. do you find that that's still like I, like I can't think of a recent story that that does that though that idea of, of propagandizing a particular technological solution like, like is that but admittedly I don't read a lot of hard science fiction so I don't yeah. know if that's still no. a thing that we see no there. that for me like that is really very like 30s 40s yeah okay yeah it's uh because that was like going back to the days where like analog in the 50s and 60s had ads for like the pan am missile division or general (laughs) dynamics on the inside front cover oh yeah no it was all very militaristic wow yeah Oh okay. yeah, they were they were selling war technology to you know, to young people in the guise of you know thrilling, exciting stories of science fiction. Right, it right, was right. Creepy. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, it sounds like, and I, I guess I mean, that shouldn't surprise me because I like between Heinlein and and like Haldeman and stuff. Like, like you see that as well. I just didn't realize that it was that widespread um, in analog and other markets as well. Because obviously, I haven't read that much. Sorry, nineteen fifties analog. Uh. <laughs> well, come on! It's like they're so easy to find. It's not like I've spent ten years building no, up that's, my yeah. uh, building up my collection. So what you're saying is that I'm lazy and I should have just looked into it myself. I'm with you. <laughs> well, now's the time. You know, you can find a lot of that stuff online and check out for yourself mm-hmm. how um, fascinating and a little horrifying some of it is. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. it is kind of the context that we're, you know, talking about. If it's not that, then you have, you know, aliens are communists and they're coming <laughs> to transform us. It's like, you know, mind you, I mean, in horror, it's like monsters are communists and they're coming to tra- So, I mean, that whole period was all about looking at stuff and just like, you know, imposing your, you know, either your morality or your political bent onto stuff and often right. in a really, you know, alarmingly conservative way. Right. So, I mean, we have a lot that we're um, reacting against. Yeah. <laughs> when yeah, we, yeah. When okay. we try to do progressive speculative fiction now, those of us who are trying to do that. Mm-hmm. Which I hope is the majority. Yeah. Maybe, I I'm, maybe so. I'm too optimistic. I don't know. But I'm just wondering, see, and again, I'm, I'm, 
uh, I am showing my my lack of expertise when it comes to um, I think pulp science fiction and, and, and hard science fiction uh, when I ask this question. But um, like in in fantasy, which is kind of where my my focus has been more recently, um, you know the, the the old joke is that you know like Tolkien's shadow and and you know the, these uh, you know I was gonna say old school, but but the, these pillars of fantasy way back that their shadow is incredibly incredibly long and, and fantasy is still trying to break out from under that. Um, do you folks think that's true of science fiction as well? That we're still breaking I, out of the shadow. I don't necessarily think so. Just as much, just because of they did, there were. I feel like there were some fundamental differences. Because, hmm. like, granted, I'm not as up on the history of fantasy as I am of science fiction. Mm-hmm. But the general impression that I've got is that fantasy, like what we consider now as fantasy was a pretty niche thing until mm-hmm. Tolkien came along with Lord of the Rings. Whereas science fiction, like its roots go back into the twenties. It was refined right. and it was re- further refined, like in the pulps in the thirties and forties. So mm-hmm. by the time Lord of the Rings came out, there was all, there was, while there were things like the idea of a consensus cosmogony for a future science fiction setting, there was mm-hmm. no really one true way of writing science fiction just because, just because of the nature of it coming up through shorts and the pulps, whereas fantasy drawing through Tolkien came through those, those large individual awe-inspiring, nov- awe-inspiring novels, which I have never read, but their influence <laughs> is still, like, their influence is such that I can, I can see it even now, and there are things that I can see that it feels like they're done because it's an echo of Lord of the Rings, like the idea of mm-hmm. fantasy worlds having huge, long histories mm-hmm. and going into deep time because t- Lord of the Rings also dealt with huge, long histories going into deep time. Yeah, so you kind of have to. I feel to, like yeah. they're sort of, it's, or I feel like there's, it's like, I feel like the difference between science fiction and fantasy historically is that science fiction had a lot of small gravity wells and fantasy had a very few, very powerful gravity wells. Right. Okay. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that's true in horror as well, to a certain extent. I was going to ask you. Yeah. I mean, horror is, uh, I mean, certainly there are, there are major works within, within the horror genre that you can see through from, from the 1800s right through into the forties and fifties. Um, but it's very, it's similar in that way to science fiction in that, that you're not in constant conversation with one particular huge, like, franchise (laughs) or even one particular huge author i mean not every horror writer now is struggling with the legacy of stephen king we just write 
totally different stuff. You know, we're right. on, you know, if you're going to, if uh, that said, if you were going to write horror that was supernatural and that was situated in small towns and that had, you know, a variety of American archetypes who were struggling against an ancient evil. Yeah. And some of them were kids. Yeah. You would <laughs> totally be, you know, you'd be in Stephen King territory, but right. you know, you're not limited to this territory or that territory. You're, you're real, what you're really in conversation with is what is scaring you now. You right, as an okay. individual writer in the world that we are in now. And, and, and you're quite free of a lot of the sort of dominant voices if you choose to be. If you want to engage in, in a kind of a cultural conversation with them through your work, you absolutely can. But, mm. it's, but there isn't that, that feeling of this shadow over top of you. Like if, like the same with Game of Thrones. I mean, for a right. while there, Game of Thrones was this really focal cultural force. I mean, television mm-hmm. played a huge part of that, but those books mattered to a lot, a lot of people. And mm-hmm. Harry Potter. I mean, if you're yeah. uh, if you're writing for children or young adult in the fantasy field and you're working with magic at all, you are absolutely in conversation with the Harry Potter books, even if only to distinguish yourself against them somehow. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it like, I'm wondering if in horror, like as much as like, yeah, like, 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 you know, you're, you're either implicitly or explicitly in conversation with Stephen King, like you're saying, yeah. like in, in, um, in fantasy, what I remember hearing, like when I was first coming up in, in writing was, you know, if you're going to be a fantasy author, you, you have to read Tolkien, you have to read Martin, you have to read whatever. And then in science fiction, it's, you have to read, you know, uh, Heinlein and Vance and Asimov, and, whatever. and, and as, right, exactly. <laughs> no, I, I agree. And as much as I fundamentally disagree with that bullshit advice, um, is that does the same bullshit advice happen in horror? Well, a version of the same bullshit advice happens okay. in horror. I mean, I think that I think that we we are working in fields where it is helpful to know your history, even mm-hmm. if you don't want to repeat it. Right, Even okay. if you if you're sitting out and saying I don't want, I don't want to write you know horror from this particular point of view or this perspective you know whether you think this is really tired or this is really you know achingly conservative and reactionary or this is really incredibly sexist and homophobic I don't want to go down those roads I'm go- mm-hmm. then you have you have a path that you can carve for yourself or you know that you find fellowship in other writers and you and you you know move in their worlds mm-hmm. um but um you still i mean there are things that are problematic about dracula god knows but it is still right. helpful as a horror writer to read dracula in order to know what it is that that was doing and and how mm-hmm. it was that it was working um if you certainly if you want to work in the field of vampires you know which a lot right. of writers are tantalized by you kind of have to know what other people have been doing both way back and more recently in order to be able to make choices for your own narratives, for your own characters um, Mm. and just know where you're situating yourself. Um, And I, but that said, I don't really feel like we are weighed heavily, you know, heavily by the yoke of one particular writer or another, or even really one particular period or another. Okay. Um, we can say, you know, confidently that in the 60s and 70s, there was a great heyday in horror for, um, you know, certain kinds of certain kinds of pulp horror, certain kinds of paperback horror, certain kinds of satanic horror, mm. um, 
uh, horror that began to sort of focus more on the disintegration of the family, that kind of stuff. But I mean, you can take those themes and they can be fresh today. There's nothing about them that just screams 1970s. (laughs) So (laughs) no family disintegration happening today. Yes. And I suspect that that's true to a certain extent in science fiction as well. I mean, where we're at now with contemporary technology and its implications mm-hmm. on society is quite different from where we were in 1974. So you right. could take something that was, you know, in vogue then, and you could transform it into something that means something to people now in an entirely different way. What I was, what I was found interesting is that, like that conversation of like the you know it's helpful to read x y and z versus it's absolutely necessary to yeah. read x y and z right like like i like i i never like the like, and it doesn't sound like you're saying like it's necessary it's just that it's no. useful for you to know no either you know, I, I would never mandate that somebody no. read this work or that work and in fact i'd probably be more likely to do the opposite i'd probably say yeah. no never read that <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> just throw it away <laughs> so um, like your list not... of science fiction writers, for example. Yeah, right. And, and I kind of picked the most worst examples I could. And I, I don't oh, know, yeah, great. Grown as soon as I mentioned Asimov, <laughs> the reason I always bring up Asimov is because that, like that, you know, when I was in grade twelve, that's who I read. Because yeah. uh, you know, one of my teachers was like, "Oh, you know, here, if you're you're interested in science fiction, read Asimov." And I was like, "Oh, cool." And at the time, I read it and was like, "Oh, yeah, you know, I, this is decent." Um, and then, you know moved on and never looked back sort of thing but yeah. Uh, yeah i mean one thing i would say that if you're interested in seeing what has gone in the past look at the wikipedia synopses of the stories because then mm-hmm. you can get like be, could get the the meat of what they're talking about so that there's that awareness of what it what it's uh, of what it's wrestled with but you don't really need to read the original mm-hmm. because they're like, especially when it comes, like some of these stories are getting like 80 years old and yeah. they're written for a completely different context. Yeah. yeah. And a completely different audience, I think too. Yeah. I mean, we yeah. have, we have changed and our perceptions of, how the various aspects of either science fiction or fantasy societies or or even to a certain extent, you know, um, the worlds of horror, mm-hmm. our relationship to all of that has changed because our relationship, you know, to, to uh, concerns of the past have changed. Mm-hmm. Um, those are not really necessarily our concerns anymore. You know, we're... And also the trappings of them, you know, like people always talk about, oh, yeah, well, we never got jetpacks. Um, <laughs> does anybody fact, still want a jetpack? They look well, this, is, this is what it comes down to is people want faster kinds of transportation. People mm. want personal transportation more often in a luxurious, you know, and privileged way, more often than group transportation. But yeah. we also are, we perceive transportation in the world differently from the way people did in the 1940s. That's just, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. So, uh, so that, I think, is a big factor as well. And, and also, it's like, what is the problem you're trying to solve? Right. You know, and I think that is something that is often asked in all of our genres is, mm-hmm. um, you know, when you are proposing something, 
you know, is it trying to solve a problem? Is it creating more problems? How, how are people engaged around those problems that are being presented and how can they work together to overcome them if they can? And that, um, and do they bring people together, tear them apart to what extent, mm. what kinds of people, rich people, poor people, people over there, people around the corner, people in my own home, those kinds of things um, have evolved because the reality of our world and our technologies and, and, and our living situations have all transformed mm -hmm. as well. Right, well, right, right, right. What you were saying about perception really uh, hits it too, because it's again, that surface view, like people are thinking of like, like people in the thirties and forties thinking about how these like, more advanced and luxurious forms of personal transportation like supercars or something would benefit would benefit them but they're not thinking about the hellishness of cul-de-sac suburbs or yeah. like car-centric suburbs and you see this a lot of things in a lot of things like the whole thing of like the idea of a personal digital assistant feels a lot better and a lot cooler before it comes, becomes realized in the form of this tendril of this huge mega corporation <laughs> yes. that's recording that's recording all of your stuff. Yep. Like I guess yeah. it's just also associated with the with the assumptions because so much of uh, so many assumptions couldn't take into account the context that they uh, that they were originated in, like people talking about like say like cybernetic limbs in the 70s mm -hmm. wouldn't necessarily have thought about the need to jailbreak them mm -hmm. right yep in order to modify them to make them uh more repairable cheaper um in order to uh configure them for yourself i mean and also you know like we're in the world essentially of the apple eye limb <laughs> so so it's you know is it is it counting how many times i jerk off in a day like i mean it's that kind of thing you know? and, uh, <laughs> like and, and people didn't anticipate that people were thinking yeah. oh the these advances in technology are going to democratize they're going to equalize we're all going to be able to share in this utopia together no great what that really reminds me of is what everyone thought of the internet around say 1995 yeah because that was that again everyone thought it would make like like communication would like open all of these new horizons people would have access to all of this information to improve themselves or so on mm -hmm. and look what happened yeah exactly yeah what i find really interesting is is um discussions around like what the next step is uh, for either internet or social media i was reading an article um that annalee newitz wrote in the new york times he interviewed oh like six different people. Mm -hmm. um, I want to say, yeah. So yeah, yeah, so about six different people that were interviewed in this. And um, John Scalzi was one of them. And then there were a couple of futurists, like, or a couple of uh, like technologists and, and internet people about what like social media might look like in 10, 20 years. Um, and, they were, and they were talking about things like, um, you know, that because social media like, like has become in many ways very echo chambery, that you'll start to see like 
like clearly deliberately defined echo chambers. It's like, if I, if I only want to talk, if I only want to see and talk to like, you know, these 10 different people, we're going to formalize that. And it's not just going to be the wild west of Twitter. Um, and, and what surprised me about that article was it was in, a lot of it was incredibly optimistic. It wasn't people looking at this hellscape of Twitter and being like, this is horrific and it's going to be terrible forever. It was, no, it was like, give it five, 10 years or longer and, and we'll see it improve to kind of close to what that, I, don't, I hate to use the word utopian, but closer to what that vision was, I think in the mid nineties. Give it five or 10 years and Twitter trolls will be able to trace you to your home <laughs> and send drones to scream at you through your window. That yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> I'm so optimistic. <laughs> uh, like, you don't sound very optimistic. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a bundle of cheer. Uh, like, no, I just... I just I find it I find it funny that you know they don't I sure if you ask a futurist first of all, first of all I want to know if this futurist is sponsored by anybody or if they're working with That's anybody, the question right yeah. you know but I mean instead of asking like you know particularly today asking a doctor um in an ER in a hospital mm -hmm. that is flooded with covid patients Ask them what, you know, what the possibilities for the future are. What are the things that they would really like to have, if not for this pandemic, then for another one down the road? Right, you know, yeah. somebody who's out in the field who is struggling to, you know, counteract the on-the-ground effects of climate change. What are the things that they need? What are the things, mm -hmm. you know, places that never used to flood that are now flooding and, you know, cities are eroding, places that used to flood but now are desert dry? Like, just what is it you need? How is it that mm -hmm. this can work? And I mean, you may not find a lot of optimism, but you might find a lot of practical, pragmatic things that then the mm. thinkers could try to implement. But, um, you know, but of course, I mean, the one thing that we that is true, I think, and that is consistent um, throughout all our narratives is that if you get some magical thing, some wonderful thing that's being offered to you, there is a price. And often the price, you know, which you cannot see fully exceeds whatever the value is of this magical object so mm -hmm. what are the implications of it and you just try to think your way through according to both the best and the worst of human nature mm -hmm. <laughs> when they receive this magical gift yeah. and uh and you know not that i expected anyone to predict that we would be dominated by two or three ultra large mega corporations but there have been hints of ultra large mega corporations throughout science fiction mm -hmm. um they've been seen as being relatively benign and caretaking but in <laughs> fact you know we know that's not the case we no, know that they think only of themselves or themselves mm -hmm. first and they look always at what the most sort of i think cynical um needs can be fulfilled by any technology before they look at anything else um that's i mean that's a narrative that has turned out to be true time and mm. time again yeah that's a good point which is you know totally not off-putting at all as... no not at all. <laughs> well i mean and in horror i mean if there's any if there's any one story that casts a long shadow and is impossible to top mm. and no matter how many variations you see on it it's the monkey's paw which itself uh -oh. is not a stunningly written story, but as an incredibly perceptive story that has, you know, speaking of tendrils, tendrils that shoot out into all directions of speculative fiction and beyond. Mm -hmm. um, 
I think that it is it is by far the most influential work because it is, I think, the truest to human nature. Interesting. Why, why do you say it's the truest to human nature? Because if you are <laughs> given your opportunity to have three wishes that you are going to choose things without thinking through the implications of what you choose and that every wish you make thereafter is going to attempt to be a selfish correction, which again is just going to screw things up even more. I think that that is the way that humanity tends to think um, when put into this sort of magical, you know, like Mm. so many of the things, you know, oh, I'm I'm going to get myself a Roomba. Oh, my Roomba is uh, number one, very capable of sensing carpets, but not very much else. And number two, it takes up a certain amount of energy, you know, occupies a certain amount of space in my mind, you know, is itself, you know, made up of precious resources where right. I could just be like cleaning my own home, like an intelligent person. <laughs> right. And yet, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and you know, a month later, there I am reduced to talking to my Roomba while I'm making myself a cup of tea. <laughs> what do you think? Should the tree go here or should it go over here? What's more convenient for you? Should... <laughs> yeah, open your path around my home. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Roomba is sending back messages to, you know, its home base saying, you wouldn't believe the shit he has in this place. He has right. one of these. Yeah, yeah. He has one of these. He has one of these. He has one of these. <laughs> <laughs> we'll sell him this and then sell him um it was funny when you were talking about um like what you know somebody working in er might might need like yeah. today or, or want for the future right oh yeah uh, uh i immediately it really reminded me of a conversation i had at CanCon like five years ago i think um with uh, somebody who was looking into um, education technology and they were looking into the idea of like basically re- um, replacing our educational assistants in the classroom with robots. So it's that's kind of an oversimplification, but that was the basic idea. Um, and, and the way they presented it to me was, you know, you've got your most at-risk students um, mm-hmm. who who need you know additional uh, you know additional help, additional one-on-one support for whatever they're working on. Um, you've got a, you know, or me, like I've got a classroom of thirty kids. Um, I can't always de- like let's 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 face back. I can never dedicate enough time to working with those students because I have to, you know, like I have 30 that I'm responsible for. Um, but this like AI would, um, would step in and, and be the one working with them. And on, on the surface, it's, it's like, okay, no, that sounds like a really good idea. Cause you know, then it, you know, it, it will hopefully uh, fill a need that we have, but nowhere in that discussion was there, you know, consideration of the fact that, okay, now like we're eliminating educational assistance from the workforce. Um, as opposed to maybe like, you know, putting more funding into providing for them. Um, and like, why is it the at-risk students that have to talk to the machine? Well, or it's, to- or it's going to be the reverse. What will happen yeah. is there will be like, there will be standardized education the way there is standardized yep. testing. And there will be a lecture that is mm-hmm. performed by one person. And, mm-hmm. you know, that will be available to students across the province. And then it's the at-risk people who get educational assistants who are paid less than teachers. And yeah. um, and they will be helped through in order to pass the test that the lecture mm-hmm. addresses. And that's, 
you know, that's, I think, the worst implications of remote learning that we have now, you know, Absolutely. simply that they just buy a package of education from somewhere and they disseminate it to, uh, to students across the country, you know, day by day, week by week, month by mm -hmm. month, year by year, this is what you get. And if you're not repeating back exactly what was said to you, then you fail. And if you fail, mm -hmm. then you get the extra assistance you need, but only to pass, not to learn. Like that's, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, to me, that's as dystopian as it gets, but I think that's well within reach. Well, oh, yeah, it does. It does sound like something that could very easily happen because it's like it does. It doesn't matter if people hate remote education. It's cheaper. And oh, under yeah. our current situation, cheaper is the first and only thing that people in charge care about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly it. There, there, there was a slight glimmer of hope, at least on my end um when at least like here in ontario when um the government was pushing for remote learning prior to the pandemic um and at least here like or here in ottawa i should say the response was that's like a horrible idea like why are you know why are my kids doing you know four or two or whatever number of online courses blah blah, blah. and i don't know whether the like the uproar from parents came from a place of like wait i have to buy my kid a computer or like if it was just the personal inconvenience part that they didn't like um, I don't think anybody was philosophically thinking about education, but at least there was a, a, um, a negative response to that, which I think made you know, our current government slow their roll a little bit. Um, but mean, the, the fact that it was even brought up, yeah. uh, but it, the, it, it's a step in the wrong direction, I think. The one thing that I think that um, weighs out against that particularly dark vision mm -hmm. is that um, I think parents, parents have a, a mix. I'm, I'm not just like parents. I'm a parent myself. But, I know, I shouldn't <laughs> but but there's a mix of the selfish and the caring about the child mm -hmm. in a variety of aspects. One is you do want to get them out of the house. You do want them to be taken care of while you're going off to work. Mm -hmm. One of the things that is driving parents insane right now is they cannot escape from their children and their mm -hmm. children cannot escape from them. So yeah. so that's a huge factor. And having them at home while they're trying to work and they're trying to learn is incredibly phenomenally distracting and the other thing is that school is a social space and kids need to learn how to socialize with each other somewhere it has Absolutely. to happen i have been amazed i mean i'm not a social person as i think we have established and it's, <laughs> and it's probably better for humanity that i'm not but uh, <laughs> but right now like i have noticed over the last nine months my social skills have degraded phenomenally <laughs> so that when i like i leave the apartment i leave the building i immediately am just clenched with anxiety and i go mm. to a store and have like normal interactions or what passes for them these days with other human beings i, I feel like i am perpetually speaking a foreign language and like, like mm. am i doing this right is this the right place for me Am I right. like, is this when I give the money? Is this when I have the little card? Is this the, do I ask for bags? I don't, I, do I need bags? <laughs> I have no idea anymore. <laughs> so, so kids have to be able to work together because that we do have a future where we're going back to working together to some extent. Mm -hmm. And uh, how that works is hard to say, but it is there is going to be some cooperation necessary. And that is going to have to happen in a variety of places. 
And kids can't just go into that cold. Like that's, there mm -hmm. has to be some sort of protected environment for them to be able to do all that or else what's really the point of living anyway. So, yeah. you know, there has to be something. So I think that is, I think parents sort of innately recognize that because they had it themselves and they understand that they cannot supply that. They can supply other things, but they can't supply that to their kids. They can't simulate mm -hmm. 30 other kids. So, no, so, you know, that's, that I think is leaning in favor of that. Mm -hmm. But, um, but I do think that we may end up seeing some weird hybrid and, um, so. and as with all weird hybrids, it will probably satisfy no one. And, yeah. uh, you know, and then we'll just have to figure out either how to learn to live with it or how to adjust it to make it into something that's more palatable. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. I, my, like, um, for the, the OCDSB here, like the school board that I, I work in, we have this virtual high school that was set up this year and, and it, there's something like 4,000 or 4,500 of our students that have Ooh. moved there to do like entirely at home learning oh. for this year. Um, and, and I'm, I'm, I expect that most of them, you know, hopefully next year when it's safe to do so, will come back to whatever their home schools are, but, but not all of them will. No. And my colleagues and I have been talking about like, like this virtual high school is here to stay. So we're going to have this kind of offshoot, like, like offshoot school, like a, a whole, like fully functioning school, but totally virtual. Um, and a bunch of students will stay there. And, and I wonder how many of the students who are going to, or, or parents are going to, you know, choose for their kids. Okay. You're going to do the virtual school. How many of them are this, are the sorts of students that like need the socialization the most, but are hesitant well, to go into the building? Yeah. I mean, I think that w the first hint of this is to look sort of at the homeschooling environment and movement yeah. that we've seen and see what percentage of students have uh, taken advantage of that and what percentage mm -hmm. of teachers because mm -hmm. to a certain extent, remote learning gives gives homeschoolers the best of all possible worlds. Their mm -hmm. their biggest concerns are sending their kids into for well or for ill, sending their kids mm -hmm. into the social environment of the school, mm -hmm. which they feel in some ways either threatening to their values or threatening to their mm -hmm. child's physical health or what have yeah, you. Which I totally get. Like, yeah, to absolutely. And so what you can do is you can get the literal learning that you mm -hmm. as a parent had been responsible for, you can get that part taken care of and that you as you know, a parent can supplement that with whatever skew you want to apply to everything with, you know, without having to worry about, you know, my child is out of my sight. I have no idea what's happening to them, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, I think if you, you know, because otherwise it's what has always been happening, you know, parents get either a handbook or a pile of handouts that they have to work through with their kids and they yeah. go through the tests and so on. If you relieve parents of that, I think more parents, again, for well or for ill, will will take advantage of it in order to be able to tailor their child's education. That, of course, has grim implications when you get older if the child, number one, hasn't had that socialization, mm -hmm. and number two, has gotten a supplement to that education that is not what everyone else perceives. Like, for example, yeah. if you decide you're going to teach your child that the earth is 15,000 years old. Yeah, or flat. They, or flat, <laughs> or both. And when, they get to, and when they get to university, they're in for a rude shock when that doesn't get yeah. them all A's. You know, that's just, yeah. you know.
You can yeah. tell I've okay. never been to university. I don't even know if they give you A's. <laughs> you know, I, I, I did, and I can't even remember. Evan, you <laughs> do they still uh, give me <laughs> my my best answer is unfortunately it depends. Oh uh, no! No, it, in in history we give things like A's and B's because it's easier to grade an essay that way. Uh, if you're in like math or psych or something, you get precisely calculated marks. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, totally precise. <laughs> Very. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Evan, what do you think about it? I, I know we've talked about this before, but like this whole, the future, potential future of remote learning, like at the college level, does it scare the hell out of you? Did it like, I mean, yeah, on a few levels, like I agree with what, uh, what David was saying about losing the socialization aspect. And I mean, it's obviously for people who are thinking of a job in education. Um, it's a little frightening to hear about wanting to move to remote learning because not only is it cheaper, but it means they less, they need less people to do it. Right. Um, and I know, I, I, I think this is something that has been cracked down on, but I know when universities were first starting to offer online courses and remote learning, there were some cases of teachers who would do a, a, an online course for a university and then find that the university's plan was to then offer those recordings perpetually yeah. forever without giving that, yeah. uh, that educator any more money. Uh, yeah. So there's all kinds of sort of, if you're interested in, in, in being an educator, um, frightening aspects to it. But, and, and this is thinking back to it, you guys were talking about earlier. I think there are unintended consequences that we almost can't see right now if we, the more we move to remote learning. And, I, and I'm thinking about an article that I was reading a few years ago now. It was a, it was a, a sociologist who was thinking about social media. And, and uh, for them, the more interesting question was not what will social media be like, but what are these people who've grown up with social media be like? Yes. Oh, in a lot of ways, like the kids that I'm teaching right now, they've grown up with social media. And what this person was making the point is these are people who are used to constantly being like constantly being in touch with their peers all the time. Yeah. Like they're always texting each other or, you know, thing on Instagram or all of the new social media that I don't know how it works. But like when you watch them <laughs> behave, like they are social media is a thing. Though. <laughs> they are constantly in touch with each other. Yeah. Yeah. And you're in touch with your peers wherever you go, right? Like you're walking down the hall and you're texting your friends who are in other parts of the building or in other buildings. And like the, the question they were posing is, what are those people going to be like? What is that generation going to be like that have grown up in this world of constantly, just these constant little contacts? They're going to be the people who world. email you at 7.45 in the morning about something that you need to do for work. And then at 747, they email again saying, why haven't you answered? Yeah. <laughs> Are you working on it? Why isn't it done? <laughs> I, I, you, you did, like, just check in with me. Just let me know what's happening. <laughs> and then your chat window opens at 749. Hello, are you there? Are you working on it? Is it happening? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Yeah, no, I I can see that in, like in in my students at the high school level, like, um, like I no matter how many times I say to them, you know, at at three o'clock, like when when the school day is over, like I might check my email for like thirty minutes, but after that I'm out. Like I said, I'm not checking my email at night. I will check it in the morning before class starts. 
um, you know, like, and I explained your work life balance one is it's an important thing, but um, well, no matter okay. how many times you're, you're going to be replaced with a recording anyway, Brandon. Probably, yes. Maybe I just <laughs> <laughs> what I need is, is to get a book deal first. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, because no, the, the expectation is still that they, they can email me. In, in their case, it's like eight or nine o'clock at night. Oh, yeah. Uh, and and I don't know, like I, I tell them on day one, I'm not going to respond until the following morning. Like, don't so don't email, and they do anyway. Yeah. Uh, oh, maybe he's awake and checking his email. No, <laughs> why? No, I've got better shit to do. I'm I'm watching Star Trek Discovery and and you know sipping tea. Like, leave me alone. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that the essence of social media in this situation is number one, the immediacy. And yeah. the expectation that people are going to be always available. And then the yeah. second thing is a certain level of depersonalization because that person's not in front of you. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that was fascinating, you know, for all that I complain about my unnamed workplace, um, <laughs> really, I, I, I will I will say that when I when I would show up in the morning, I was in an open concept space. There were like 25 other people there. And I had casual contact with all Mm -hmm. those people. I knew all those people. I knew them reasonably well. I knew things about their families. I knew things about how they got into work and what they did while they were here. And Mm -hmm. then when they took off and what they did with their weekends. And since March, I would say I've been in contact with five of those people. Yeah. And some of those people contact has been like, we've checked in two or three times with each other. Mm. Really? It's my team that I, which is a small team uh, that I have been in constant contact with. We have the chat window open all the time. Everyone else has sort of disappeared into this fog. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that is just very, very different from what a lot of us were experiencing a year ago. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Like in my case, it was, which like we're about to, you know, because we're going to be uh, teaching virtually uh, for a few weeks or by the time this comes out a few months ago. Yeah. Um, but uh, like every morning we go in and before class starts, there's about anywhere from six to nine of us, you know, come out of our respective classrooms. We're, you know, we're chatting in the hallway for a good 20, 25 minutes before class starts and students are coming in. Whatever, and, and that this semester has become the most important part of my day because I sit there and I chat with my colleagues and we check in and we joke about whatever new BS is coming down from the school board and, and whatever. Mm-hmm. And then we go in and, and we go into the trenches and we do our, our, our pandemic teaching for the day. Um, and, and not having that say like last year, you know, during winter at home um, was like, was horrible. Like, like not having that casual contact and, and, but it kind of going to what Evans like um, mentioning with that article I'd be really curious to know how much not having that would affect my students. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, the point the article was making would made it a little unsatisfying, but uh, was that we just don't know. And there's no way that we can know because well, we're not going to see, we're not going to see the effects of this for still several decades. Well, like what are these people actually going to be like? But no, I want the answer and, now. Evan. And, but <laughs> Like to me, that wider effect of like, not what will social media be like, but what will the people who are used to using social media be like is the more interesting kind of thing. Those sort of, like Phoebe was saying right at the beginning, the kind of unintended consequences Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. technological changes, to me, always more interesting than the tech. Well, and of course, this is where our speculative fiction writers have to step up. They have to 
sit there and they have to extrapolate from what we know now and envision mm -hmm. for well or for ill what this is going to look like and you know and tell us <laughs> warn us yeah, right. <laughs> and this is why i don't write a lot of science fiction i'll leave that to you. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure phoebe but you're up <laughs> i would take it but you know of course how mine ends everybody kills everybody so you know that, that, that. <laughs> there, there, yeah i'm gonna say in bone mother there's a lot a lot of people like a lot of blood a lot of bodies on the floor which is yeah. was awesome don't get me wrong, but, yeah uh... yeah the new book's not any better <laughs> oh, <perfect>. <laughs> you were looking for hope i would say Pick Phoebe's book. Okay. <laughs> Once it's written, you got, you, you got this. Um, actually, speaking of uh, not Phoebe's book, but um, Phoebe, I wanted to ask about your game. Yes. Because yeah. yeah, again, as of the recording of this, it, it just came out. It, it will have been out for a couple of months by the time this, this gets posted. But Yeah, my game, The Luminous Underground, yeah. Choice of Games, came out nine days before this recording. Nice. And yes, uh, just very uh, secondary, secondary world, contemporary municipal fantasy. I love, I love contemporary cool. municipal fantasy. I love that municipal fantasy. Yeah, there. It's something that uh, I think it was originated by someone, the Montreal Science Fiction Association. If you yeah. do a search for the term, you'll you'll find you'll find it. But basically, it's like looking at like the difference between urban fantasy and municip and municipal fantasy being really in terms of the outlook like for example like ghostbusters you could sort of argue maybe as being urban fantasy to start with because of something yeah there are these ghosts but they're like underneath the level of normality and they're not like especially as the story begins they're not really believed and then when you go to ghostbusters 2 it's like they're all written off as hallucinations or like uh, swamp gas or something whereas the whole <laughs> idea of municipal fantasy is like these basic these exist or, and known are as co and are codified the writer of that post kind of like makes it clear and like using one of the examples that are used is like think in terms of like urban raccoons eat your eat your garbage because that what ra that's what raccoons do whereas municipal raccoons it sounds like they're only eating their garbage your garbage because that's their job <laughs> oh. <laughs> they're actually being helpful <laughs> it's like i can't like again i can't take credit for that but it's more along the lines of the situations where it's known and integrated kind of like max gladstone a lot of max gladstone's work has a lot yeah. more of that municipal rather than urban feel to me right okay interesting how um how has like the 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 release of of your game and and kind of like you know, like the immediate days after the release um how has that been like 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 is it much different than say like when a short story comes out because obviously a game is a totally different demon and it's on a different platform and like like is it like well, has there been yeah. a whole bunch of stuff going on like well it's been different in terms of just the weight of it okay. and also yeah, just trying to trying to advertise it and get people to buy it because for the first week it was on sale 
And right, so yeah. just trying to wait, raise awareness of it. But whereas for, I think the difference for short stories is like a lot of people are going to come to going to come along to those short stories just because they're already reading the magazine. So the magazine is this, uh, is this delivery mechanism for these short mm-hmm. stories. And so you're not necessarily seeking out this, this individual short story so much as you are seeking out what this magazine is publishing this month. Like right. it's not always the case. Sometimes people are looking for, for, specific short stories before something like a game especially because rather unlike novels this game does not have a huge like marketing budget behind it mm-hmm. so i think it was it was in it was a circumstance of where it might not necessarily have been widely known like mm. cuz it didn't really have as many options so that's one reason why I was just trying to boost it through my own social media avenues. Right. It is right. very different from a book in that regard, in many regards, from what right. I observed, because I've never gone through the whole book process yet. I'm curious, right. because I'm a terrible person, how many words do you think are in the game? 660,000. Good God. (laughs) If I had written something that was 660,000 words long, I would not shut up about it. You would not be able to to run away from me screaming, buy my game. (laughs) Good Lord. (laughs) Yeah. And I know, like, we've taught, like, um, we've had on this podcast actually like both kate hartfield and katie brisky who also wrote uh, for choice of games and yes. and when i when i asked them about it both here and 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 privately the first thing that they said was, was yeah just the sheer amount of words and all the fucking like coding that needed to be done oh god yeah like because it because it's it's um a choose your adventure thing right so you got to yeah. come with all these paths and it just said like i toyed with the idea of like a couple of years ago of, of like pitching an idea to choice of games and then i heard the what the process was and i was like nope i'm out they're not a fucking chance. Um, and so, like, mad kudos to you and then obviously Kate and, and Katie and anybody that, that oh, writes yeah. the choice of games because I, I wouldn't be able to do it. I it am is the a very... laziest man in the world. <laughs> it, very... <laughs> it is a very specific confluence of. Well, I see it's nap time for giant beasts, so it's safe to venture out once more. We had a wonderful time talking with our fellow survivors today, so thank you to Phoebe and David for joining us here in our underground safe haven. We'd also like to thank musician Chris Kesner for providing our intro and outro music, um, and as well to thank you to our sound editor June Park for doing all the behind-the-scenes editing. And as well, thank you to all of you survivors out there for joining us for our conversation today. Stay safe, always be kind to the kaiju, and we'll look forward to reaching you again with our next broadcast from the wasteland.